Hi, my name is Joseph Terigian, and I'm a professor at the School of International Service at American University in Washington, D.C., and a Global Fellow at the Wilson Center's History and Public Policy Program. Welcome to my Conversation 6 podcast on Prestige, Manipulation, and Coercion, Elite Power Struggles in the Soviet Union and China after Stalin and Mao, recently published with Yale University Press. My book is about succession politics in the Soviet Union from 1953 to 1957 and China from 1975 to 1981. The conventional view of these transitions is that they had a lot in common. At first, there was a confrontation over economics and politics, and ultimately there was a triumph of reformers over conservatives or radicals. Moreover, the victories of Nikita Khrushchev and Deng Xiaoping were the result of a triumph of inter-party democracy and collective leadership. This historiography I've just described has a lot in common with the political science literature on how Leninist regimes work. That's no surprise because a lot of that political science literature drew precisely upon these cases to theorize. What does this conventional political science literature on Leninist regimes say? First, leaders are allegedly able to win with popular policy platforms or patronage. Second, leaders compete within a single defined group who are enfranchised to pick the top leader, a group known as the selectorate. And third, the power ministries, by which I mean the military and political police, do not play a pronounced role. In other words, Leninist regimes are often seen to be all about exchange and institutions, a popularity contest, so to speak. But what the new evidence shows is that this was not a politics of exchange, but instead a politics of personal prestige, historical antagonisms, backhanded political maneuvering, and a substantial role for the specialists in violence. In other words, two of the most important successions in 20th century world history were not so much victories of reformers over conservatives or radicals, as previous accounts have, su have suggested, but a settling of scores. So the book shows, surprisingly, that leaders with a dictatorial style, not consensus builders, emerged triumphant. Real policy differences were minimal. And in fact, outcomes revolved around personal prestige, historical antagonisms, and compromising personal material. Second, winners were not picked with quasi-institutions or inter-party democracy. Instead, discussions took place in a conspiratorial environment. No defined group was empowered to make the decisions, and often whether or not the Politburo or larger central committee was allowed to make a decision was crucial. And third, the power ministries were absolutely essential. In an environment with ambiguous rules, the people with guns had an outsized influence, and everyone saw the military as the ultimate guarantor of power. However, although this was a knife fight, it was a knife fight with weird rules. People did not shoot each other at Politburo meetings institutions did have some importance. First, competitors went to great lakes to make their victory look legitimate, and they wouldn't violate even ambiguous rules any more than necessary. Losers did not defect or try to start a revolution, and the power ministries did not work against the civilian leadership. Instead, they were invited to participate during moments of transition. In the book, I talk about four cases. The fall of Beria in 1953, the defeat of the anti-party group in 1957, the purge of the Gang of Four in 1976, and the long fall of Hua Guofeng, Mao's initial successor from 1976 to 1981. Let me talk about the Hua case in more detail here. Why? Well, often when you read about China, you read two things. 
first that Deng Xiaoping started reform and opening at the third plenum in 1978, and second that Deng was an institutionalizer who established new guardrails to prevent the reappearance of a new strongman leader like Mao. Moreover, the conventional view of Hua is that he held a dogmatic and radical ideology. He attempted to block rehabilitation of old revolutionaries, he had his own faction, and he was widely disliked, so his defeat was inevitable. But the evidence we have now suggests a very different story. Hua was very popular in many corners of the party, did not have his own faction, wanted to work with the old revolutionaries, and deserves credit for starting the reform process. In fact, on the night before the famous work conference before the Third Plenum, Hua said he approved moving away from, from class struggle as the primary focus of the party. Hu Yaobang, who later became general secretary of the party, said during this work meeting to his son, Hua Guofeng, in one swipe of the pickaxe, broke a hole in the dike. Just how big the flow of history will make that hole is completely up to the power of the people. So here we see Hu Yaobang talking about Hua Guofeng, not Deng Xiaoping. The real issue wasn't policy differences, but party seniority. Hua was seen as an upstart who was promoted too rapidly during the Cultural Revolution, and the old revolutionaries harbored a deep antagonism toward that event. Moreover, the removal of Hua was not conducted in a democratic spirit. Deng reorganized the top military hierarchy while Hua was on a trip to Europe. Deng met privately with many of the top elite, privately, but Hua decided not to contest Deng's actions for the good of the party. So what does this mean for today? Well, many people hope for a new course correction in China that is the result of an elite revolt, something like what they believe happened during the third plenum in 1978. But what this new evidence shows is that in fact, Chinese politics are not a popularity contest and hopes for such a change likely will not come to fruition.